Before we begin the topic for today's class, I would like to make a few comments of clarification regarding one point I made in yesterday's lesson. And you remember that we spoke about the arrival of Nehemiah to restore the walls of Jerusalem, and in doing so, compared this to the work of our Lord Jesus in his second coming. After yesterday's class, I had a question from a sister who pointed out that my remarks seemed to indicate that Christ's mission would be solely to defeat the Arab adversaries of Israel. When I developed my lessons for yesterday's class, this was not my intent, and I was not planning on going in depth on this point. And after reviewing my notes, I feel that I could have been clearer on this point. But I have a few things to consider, um, and we, of course, don't have much time to spend on it, um, but some things that really are kind of a review of what we've talked about this week. The first is that Nehemiah sought to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we might ask ourselves then, who destroyed these walls, as well as the temple? And, of course, we know this was Babylon. And so we can kind of begin to factor Babylon within this uh, equation. And we also know that the Roman Empire, as we talked about, also fulfilled the same role as the vanquisher of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So we can keep those in mind as we try to sort out these types and uh, how they play out in the latter days. Secondly, many of the Jews' enemies in the land at this time were not simply her Arab neighbors. And again, we pointed this out in a, a, a couple classes back anyway. And we read the verse which reads, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim. So there was in the land a great representation both of Babylonian and Assyrian forces in the land. Thirdly, we, re- we referenced Revelation 19 yesterday concerning the Christ and the saints and their work in cleansing the land. And in those verses, a little past what we read, it reads that they were there to destroy the kings of the earth and their armies which were gathered together to make war against him. So again, this idea that this is not solely an Arab conflict. And next, as far as the suggestion goes, um, let's turn to Nehemiah 2.19, which we read yesterday. And again, I'm putting out suggestions here that hopefully you can go back and consider uh, in your own time. Nehemiah 2.19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Jeshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? There are really three forces at work we see in this verse. First, we have Nehemiah and his band of men. We have the Arabs, or Arabians, who question Nehemiah concerning his actions. And we have the king. Zimbala does not say, will you rebel against us? He asks if Nehemiah seeks to rebel against the king. So if this king figures into the type, we must ask ourselves, who is this king? And what does he represent? for he does not seem to be among the Jews' neighbors. And we know that at the time that this was the king of Medo-Persia, and which ties us back into the whole um, image which, which Nebuchadnezzar saw and all that it represents. 
So I just wanted to uh, add that as, as part of an explanation, hopefully, um, to yesterday's lesson. And uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, they can uh, talk to me later. Our verse for today is this, the words of Nehemiah. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. It is very common for us to read through the accounts of God's people and to somehow isolate them from the realities of our time. We treat the modern world and our situation as being unique, and to some degree it is. But our position before God is the same as those we read of in the Scriptures, and we struggle with the same tendencies of sin. We spoke earlier about the grace which had been extended to the people of God in Ezra's time. What was going on in the rest of the world? At the same time of Nehemiah, Socrates lived in Greece and was developing many of the philosophies which still subvert men's souls today. Within a few decades, Buddha lived in India and Confucius lived in China. Between these three men, literally billions of people have been led astray and they are still followed today. The remnant which we read of return, that which returned to Jerusalem were formed of certain men and women of the Babylonian captivity who made the individual choice to seek a return to Babylon. These individuals sought to rebuild the temple of God, which is something we strive to do in our lives. For we are told, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem takes on an equally symbolic meaning. For we are told concerning New Jerusalem, and I saw John, and excuse me, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Today's class is entitled The Ecclesia After the Exile, and we are going to take a look at this group of so, of called out ones which came from the, from Babylon with the intent on serving the God of their fathers in the city of their fathers, which he had chosen. As we examine this group, we would like to see Excuse me. As we examine this group, we see those who had been in the captivity of the enemy, but were now free and chose to use that freedom to seek after their God. We would expect everything to work out very well for this group who, in, who had endured so many trials and so many tribulations. However, like our ecclesias today, there were problems. As we review what the Spirit records about the sins and errors of this people, we must all be keenly aware that these problems are not confined to the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The actions of this remnant will, in many cases, bear a striking resemblance to the problem in our ecclesias today. The common thread, of course, between them now and then is the human nature which we bear. As we examine our ecclesias today, we can see a group of people who have which have found freedom from the captivity of sin and who seek to serve the living God. With such a common bond, how can we have such problems within our own ecclesias? Hopefully a review of some of the problems of the children of Israel will help us in the consideration of our own walk. 
There were three waves of Jews which returned, as recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first group was led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the second by Ezra, and the third by Nehemiah. Each of these groups had their own difficulties and problems which needed to be dealt with. We'll take a look at the verses along uh, regarding some of these accounts uh, uh, today, Lord willing, depending on time, and we've already talked about some of them. But if we look in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and I'll try to give the, the time period for each of these, when Jeshua and Zerubbabel began to build the temple, we covered it several days ago, that they postponed the building of the Lord's house. So they began the work, the foundation was laid, and yet, after many years, that work was not completed. They were instead building their own houses. We see later on that the Jews were selling their own brethren into slavery after they had come forth with a great deliverance, with Babylon being destroyed, they'd come into the land, and yet they did not have any pity for their brother. Next, we have what's described as the holy seed mingled with the people of the land. And this was through marriage with the nations which were around them. Interestingly enough, this house which was built in the time of Zerubbabel, many years later in the time of Nehemiah, we have a chamber prepared in that house for the enemy, which was Tobiah. So he actually had a little room in there of his own with his own possessions in it. Next, we had the working, buying and selling on the Sabbath day. And this is something that, you know, we know that Nehemiah put an end to after the walls were constructed. He made sure that for the Sabbath day that those walls and those gates were, the gates were closed to keep this from happening, to keep the children of Israel from sinning. Due to the intermarriage with the nations around them, we have children who could not even speak the Jews' language. Next, we have those who tried to put Nehemiah in fear. And lastly, we have priests that could not be reckoned, that could not be found reckoned in the genealogies of priests. So, this was something that occurred in the days of Zerubbabel, and Lord willing, we'll cover that in some detail today. So, if we try to come up with modern day equivalents, here's what we may find. We have those who have their priorities geared toward themselves, not seeking to follow after the Lord their God in building this spiritual temple. We have a lack of brotherly love one for another, not forgiving the debts of our brothers. We have marriage out of the truth, being again mingled with the people of the land, not recognizing the the sanctity which we can find if our marriage is anchored both spouses being in the truth, and Brother James spoke well on that yesterday. We have sin taking root in the ecclesia of God. So here we have, in the natural case, Tobiah. He had an actual place within the temple. And, And again, we hope to read those verses today if we have time. We have the ignoring of the commandments of God, the love of money, striving for the 
the current work of the day such that it excludes the work of the Lord. And again, that also could uh, tie into having a lack of faith that the Lord would provide. We have children more familiar with the ways of the world than with the ways of the truth. And this is really something that uh, is very significant to parents in order to make sure that our children do not end up in this similar circumstance. We have the usurping of the elders of the ecclesia. And then finally we have what I would call members whose right to partake of the emblems is questionable. And again, Lord willing, we'll talk about that a little more as we go ahead. So as we see, we can see here, these problems are nothing which is new. And yet often we, we push off particularly the Old Testament writings as saying, well, this was in a different time, and today, well, it's a lot different because we're in a different, uh, dis- different dispensation, life's more hectic, we have all these technologies and so forth. And yet we see that many of the things which they encountered um, really mirror what we have today. And what we hope to see is how, in particular, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel uh, deal with these particular circumstances. So we'll begin first with um, Ezra's situation regarding intermarriage. Ezra the priest was faced with the problem of intermarriage between the Jewish remnant and the surrounding nations. And this was something that as soon as Ezra came into the land, he was not there but for a few, I can't remember, it was months or days when this problem was presented to him. And it was something he immediately had to deal with. The first wave of captives had completed the work of building the temple, but in the intervening years they had begun to associate and intermingle with their heathen neighbors. The Lord raised up Ezra, a righteous man, to correct his people and cause them to be holy and separate from the abominations of their neighbors. As we look at men such as Ezra and Nehemiah, we see a model of how the elders of the ecclesia are to shepherd the ecclesia. In particular, in particular, we find three characteristics. First, these leaders knew the laws and commandments of the Lord their God. They understood God's message. We read how Ezra was a very diligent scribe. He was a ready scribe in the law of his Lord. And, and, and Nehemiah as well references the law of Moses. They greatly anticipated the rewards of, of righteousness and were quick to recognize sin in their midst. And this is a characteristic that believers in our time need to have. We need to have the ability to recognize sin before it grows too large. The second characteristics of these leaders is their reliance on the Almighty, particularly through prayer. And we read through several prayers yesterday. Lord willing, we'll read a few today. And these are all something which is incumbent upon someone who is an elder of an ecclesia that they don't use human logic or human reasoning, that they incorporate prayer and petitioning of the Lord in these difficult matters. And lastly, these leaders were men of action. They dealt with problems immediately. Those who seek to be, those who seek to guide the ecclesia must have the dedication and the ability to take care of problems in a timely manner. And if we were to take a natural example, we know that cancer is something which can infect a natural body. And if it is found early, it's detected early, it can be removed when it's very small. 
But once that cancer begins to grow and take over many portions within the body, the chances of recovery are quite slim. So let's turn over to Ezra chapter 9, and we'll read about uh, Ezra's uh, first problem. Ezra chapter 9, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. Ezra chapter 9. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so they have so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, this is Ezra, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the word of the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away, and I sat astonished or astonished until the evening sacrifice. Consider Ezra's reaction to the news of the children of Israel's intermarriage with her neighbors. Ezra took this news very seriously and very personally. He was saddened and astonished at the news. Why is that? He could have easily distanced, distanced himself he was a new arrival into the land. He could have tried to ignore the problem. But Ezra was a wise man, and we believe a student of the history of the Jewish people. He remembered that the cause of the Babylonian captivity was due to just such wickedness by previous generations of his own countrymen. Once sin becomes condoned and accepted, the children of Israel would again place themselves upon the receiving end of God's righteous judgment. Ezra knew that the future of his ecclesia rested upon dealing with this sinful breach, lest, as we spoke about in our first class, their lampstand would again be removed from their midst. It is evident from our day that the sin of one member in an ecclesia can, become, can have significant impacts on other members, and in some cases cause problems for many throughout the brotherhood. The fact that we are so connected with each other is demonstrated in the fact that even sometimes our younger members will have to deal with problems or situations which have arisen from a sin which occurred even before their birth. In dealing with difficult problems such as these, the actions and attitude of Ezra should be diligently followed as a pattern to finding re resolution for this problem. And Brother James made a comment about this um, several days ago regarding the fact that when we hear about problems that are occurring or when we see them occurring, what is our reaction? Do we just, you know, uh, say, well, that's, that's just them and, and they're lost anyway? Or do we take it personally and try to get involved and help out and restore a brother or a sister in need? We would like to read the prayer of Ezra, and in doing so, we would like to consider the attitude of Ezra as well as his recognition of the of the consequences of sin. We'd like to read here from Ezra 
chapter 9, verses uh, 5 through 15. I guess it's the rest of the chapter. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our heads and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. And sometimes we get to the point where we just hear about so much sin and so many things going wrong that it doesn't have any personal effect on us. It doesn't cause any emotional stir within us. But here is Ezra, a man who comes in and he is ashamed and he blushes to lift up his face before the Almighty to even admit that these things were done. Verse 7, Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our princes, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which they have filled it from the one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever. I like to repeat that. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that is come upon us for our, for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou our God hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us, so that, thou sh- so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. The people responded to Ezra's leadership and showed great remorse and repentance for their deeds. They acknowledged their sins. And their response is given in Ezra chapter 10. We'll read just the first three, chap- first three verses. Ezra 10 verse 1. Now when Ezra had, con- had prayed 
And when they had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept sore. So the recognition of their sin was before them. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. It should be noted that Ezra convinced the people of their faults and it was the people who decided that the best course of action was to separate from their strange wives. In our day and age, this seems to be a very harsh remedy for the situation. And yet this was the consensus of the people. Perhaps the situation was so bad that reform of the alien wives was simply out of the question. We were reminded of the words of Christ. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. These questions are hard because there is a seeming conflict between several of God's laws. On the one hand, we have God's commandment to separate from the world. And on the other hand, we have, there is the law of marriage, which was again instituted by God, which in and of itself has provisions regarding the bond between man and wife. We will allow you to draw your own conclusions regarding the response of the people, but it should be fair to note that issues regarding the problems of marriage are one of the hardest problems to be resolved in Ecclesia because of these tensions between various ordinances of the Almighty. So whether you side on the side of mercy or side on the side of law or help define some middle ground, they're very difficult issues which need to be resolved and you really have to compare the whole of Scripture and the particular instances of a case to determine what would need to be done. We would like to move on, and we'd like to turn to Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 records for us the lineage of the priests which came forth with Zerubbabel and with Jeshua the high priest. And it lists the people and the priests. And there's an interesting note here in verses 61 through 63. And I'll also note for you that this chapter is almost verbatim in Nehemiah chapter 7. So um, if you care to compare them at some time, you can do that. But they're fairly identical. Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 through 63. And of the children of the priests, the children of Hebaiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called after their name, these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, 
were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. And the Tershatha, which in this case we believe to be Zerubbabel, said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things until there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. These verses show that some of the people claimed to be the children of the priests and who sought to be numbered and to serve their duties in the priesthood, but their lineage could not be verified. This matter was brought before the governor who ordered that they should withhold from eating of the most holy things until there stood up a priest with Urim and Thummim. The fact that the governor mentions specifically Urim and Thummim draws our connection, draws a connection to the breastplate which was worn by the high priest in the law of Moses. We read in Exodus, and thou shalt put a breastplate of judgment. The, thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart, which goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. And again, we'll put a stress there as we go along. Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart. If we take a quick look at the definition of Urim and Thummim, these are from Strong's. Uh, Urim indicates lights, and in this he says the oracular brilliancy of the figures in the high priest's breastplate, which we saw the picture of there. And Thummim deals with perfections. And it says one of the epithets of the objects in the high priest's breastplate as an emblem of completeness or of the complete truth. So again, those were dealing with this breastplate and the lights associated with it. To give you some... This is one rendition that I found trying to um, put together the the colors as well as the engraving of the names of the the 12 tribes upon them. So you can imagine the colors and, and the the, uh, the display. I'd like to read a couple of short paragraphs from the Law of Moses concerning this. That precious stones should be used to represent them is an intimation that they will be both excellent and immortal. That they should be set in gold shows that faith will never be absent from our relation to God. Through sight, though sight will blend with and in some sense swallow it up. That they should be called the Urim and the Thummim, light and fullness, is an indication of the fact that without light, precious stones have no beauty, and that when the light shines upon them, their beauty is is a radiant fullness. The light that has developed excuse me, the light that developed the beauty of the stones in the ephod of Aaron when he went in before the Lord in the dark interior of the tabernacle was the glory that dwelt between the cherubim. So you can imagine that you have the Ark of the Covenant with the light coming off the cherubim, that glory shining forth and illuminating that breastplate 
with all its various stones of various colors, the names of the children of Israel and, and bear, born upon them and coming forth. The antitype will be seen in its completeness when the glory of the Lord beautifies the perfected tribes of Israel with light and immortality. When the glory of the Lord departed from the temple, there was no answer for the glory that would be used to cover the mercy seat. The breastplate of the high priest sank to a mere piece of lusterless jewelry. And we spoke earlier this week how in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah that they did not have the ark with this, uh, with its ability or with God, God's ability to, from there, shine forth. And so at this time, these stones would be dark. This is why afterwards, when a claim of belonging to the priesthood was put forward by certain families who could not show their pedigree on the return to Babylon, it was said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim. With this background, we can see that the Tershatha was informing these priests that the ability to function in the temple and to partake of the holy things would have to wait until a judgment could be received from a high priest who not only wore the breastplate upon his heart, but also served in a temple in which dwelled the glory of the Lord. This was one of the great hopes and expectations of the Jews after the exile, that that once they had completed the rebuilding of the temple, the glory of the Lord would fill the temple as it had done in the time of the building of the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple. This breastplate of judgment is, of course, typical of our Lord Jesus Christ, who now serves in the role of high priest and will continue in this role when he becomes the judge of his household and the whole world. Uh, Two sentences from the selected works of Thomas Williams. Urim amid Thummim means fullness and light. Now Jesus was the light of the world, and in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It was useless for Israel to look for another, since Jesus only would be able to produce the full credentials. As we step back and view this imagery, what lesson can it provide for our times? It would seem to me that there are some questions and some problems which are at times brought before the ecclesia which are difficult to judge in this dispensation since there is no open vision or bestowal of the Holy Spirit in our days. There are some issues, particularly dealing with fellowship, which can cause much anguish among brethren because to us the intentions of the Almighty are not clearly known. As hard cases are examined, the role of justice and mercy must be properly weighed in the balance. We are told in Proverbs, He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. It is possible that there will be times which arrive, and which, which will arrive, when we will be unable to make a judgment concerning a case in the ecclesia. And these are very hard times as brethren uh, struggle over certain issues. These cases will then need to be decided by the righteous judge, who will do so upon his return to this earth at the judgment seat. 
We would suggest perhaps that these verses indicate that until the time of our Lord's judgment, it may be necessary that a member refrain from the partaking of the holy things, the bread and the wine, until these priests are judged appropriately by the man who wears or incorporates the Urim and the Thummim. So just some thoughts regarding that. To conclude this section, we would like to examine some of the trials of Nehemiah as he sought to lead the children of Israel. There is perhaps a kinship between Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul, both of whom endured trials from all sides. To borrow a portion of the words of the Apostle Paul, we would say that Nehemiah was in perils of his own countrymen, in perils of the heathen, in perils of the city, in perils among false brethren. We just have time to take a look at a couple of of problems which Nehemiah encountered. Let's start by reading a few scriptures. Let's turn to Nehemiah 13, read verses 6 through 8. Nehemiah 13, verses 6 through 8. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. And it should be noted that Nehemiah came, helped set up the walls. He had to go home or he went back to report to the king. And then he came back again and encountered more problems. But in all this time was I not at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. And after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil of Eliashab that Eliashab did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. The outrage of Nehemiah is understandable, and it brings to mind our Lord Jesus throwing out the money changers from the temple. The house of God has been made a den of thieves. As we read this recorded at the end of Nehemiah, we wonder how such events could have occurred. How could the temple be so defiled that in such a, in such a short period of time, a very place was made for the enemy? This should be a warning to us that sin can come upon us very quickly. If we are looking for an explanation, we feel that there are several verses which may help us. Let's turn to Nehemiah 13 and look at verses 28 and 29. Nehemiah 13, verses 28 and 29. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the high of the priesthood and of the Levites. So here we have, how could it be that the enemy of God could have a very place, a room set up for himself in the temple of God? Well, here's your first explanation. Jehoiada, the son of the high priest, was the son-in-law of the enemy. Let's turn over to Nehemiah chapter 6. 
and read verses 17 through 19. Nehemiah 6, beginning at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came unto them. For there were many in Judah sworn unto him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me, and uttered my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. So we see here a very mixed dedication on the part of these people. They were Jews in the land, but of course they were very much intermarried. And this occurred after the time which we read about Ezra. Ezra came forth, he had the people separate, and then very shortly afterwards, or uh, within probably 10 or 20 years, this, this occurs as well. The mixing of the people of God with the nations around them started from the very top levels of the priesthood and princes. This was not a problem which was isolated to a small set of people at the lower levels of the social structure. It would probably be safe to assume that this was all part of a plan by Sambalat and Tobiah to infiltrate and overcome the people of God in a manner in a manner they were unable to do while Nehemiah was present during the construction of the walls. So they took advantage of Nehemiah's absence. As we look at our overhead of the transgressions of the people, we find that they are not all distinct sins which sprout up independently one of another. Once one sin is allowed to be practiced, soon accommodations are made for the others. If we take Tobiah for an example, I would think that Nehemiah, I would think that while Nehemiah was building the walls of Jerusalem, he would not have even allowed Tobiah into the city. When Tobiah's children were intermarried with the Jews, he would have then had reason to walk among the streets of Jerusalem. Finally, he along with Sambalat exerted pressure to have special accommodations in the very temple of God. The children of Israel were on a downward spiral to the same condition they were prior to their captivity. We would like to make one more comment regarding this intermarriage. Let's turn over to Nehemiah 13. Verses 23 through 24. Nehemiah 13, 23 and 24. In those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. In today's world, popular culture can be quite overwhelming, especially for our children and our young people. And I know this particular thought has been expressed several times already during the Bible school, but I don't think it can be emphasized enough. Before they're old enough to recognize the inherent evil 
and wickedness in various mediums, be it television, internet, uh, what you would hear on the radio, newsprint, etc., our young people can be overcome by an endless barrage of sounds and images being thrown at them. This medium seeks to promote the basis of desires and waters down what little bits of morality still exist in our society. This is the modern-day Ashdod. Ashdod means ravager, and this is what popular culture can do to us and to our young people. Is it a coincidence that it, it was at Ashdod that the Philistine army defeated Israel and took away the Ark of the Covenant? And it's often said that children are a sponge, and I can testify this uh, firsthand, just knowing from young children how quickly they can pick up certain phrases or, or certain things which they see. But I would also suggest to you that even adults are sponges, whether you realize it or not. Maybe not quite as receptive as children, but we too are products of our environment. And what we allow to come in, as one brother stated early in the week, the garbage that's in, uh, in the world around us, if we allow that to come into us, you know, we're on this same path. We're being ravaged by our current culture. And so there's something that we really need to, 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 uh, strive to, to walk, to be on our toes. We must strive to isolate our little ones from this culture. We must, must teach them the righteous laws of God, the Jews' language as it is said in this verse, so that they can properly resist the wickedness as they become young adults and begin to venture into the world on their own. And this is not an easy job. It is best accomplished when a child has two parents with a oneness of mind in thought and in action. Marriage in the truth helps provide this common goal which is vital to raising godly seed. So this is something for us to remember. In Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah recounts many of the trials which he endured of his own countrymen. And if you take the time to read through the whole chapter, you will find that Nehemiah is making a plea that the mercy of God be upon him. Nehemiah did not want the Almighty to forget what he had done for God's people. The thoughts of this chapter bring to mind the words of one of Nehemiah's contemporaries, and that being Malachi. We'd like to turn over to Malachi chapter 3 and read verses 16 through 18. Malachi 3, verses 16 through 18. Malachi 3.16 Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that sought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I shall make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Nehemiah 13 is what we might call Nehemiah's chapter of remembrance. 
Nehemiah recounts in his own words what he has done for God's people. These are things which he wishes to be remembered for, but his attitude is not one of bragging, but it is a petition in which he is asking for remembrance in this latter day. We'd like to read through these verses. Let's turn first to Nehemiah 13, verse 14. And the, the, the intervening verses between these are, are the various problems which he encountered and how he dealt with them. Nehemiah thirteen fourteen, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. So he was petitioning that his work for the Lord as an elder in the ecclesia in shepherding these people would not be lost. Let's look at verse 22. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. So in these verses we see that Nehemiah is not saying, see, I have done all these works, therefore you know, it's, it's in the store for me that I might uh, have a place. He's saying, remember these when you're performing judgment and weighing forth your great mercy. And the last two verses of the chapter, verses 30 and 31, Thus, I, thus cleansed I them from all strangers, and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, every one in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. From these verses, we can draw the following conclusions. First of all, Nehemiah was in expectation of a future judgment. He was well aware that a day would come when he would have to stand before a righteous judge and give account for his deeds. Nehemiah had indeed been a righteous servant before the Almighty. His works were essential in cleansing the temple of God, preserving the rights of priests, keeping holy the Sabbath day, cleansing the priesthood and the people. In all these, Nehemiah sought to follow the Lord's will. But could his work save him? Nehemiah's own words show that he was dependent on the mercy of the Almighty. It was the grace of God which would save him. He pleads, wipe not out my good deeds that I have done, and spare me according to thy great mercy. This last chapter of Nehemiah is as a prayer to the Almighty, that in the great day of judgment to come, that he would look kindly upon Nehemiah and remember him for good. We'll stop there for the day.